I just, uh, reflecting on this weekend, uh, the colors are definitely in high, uh, maybe, maybe getting close to the peak, and uh, our family took some time yesterday to go and uh, partake of apple cider and apple cider donuts and uh, just enjoyed the, uh, the beauty. And I hope you all do take time to do that type of thing because uh, the heavens declare the glory of God and His majesty is proclaimed through nature. And it is very easy in our tech world to get enmeshed in a little bubble where we are kind of contained in our minds. And it's so important for us to walk in nature and to be overcome, if you will, by the glory of God as He displays Himself in nature. Uh, But that's not the only place that we see God's glory. We also see it in the Scriptures as well. And so, as we come together on a Sunday morning, uh, we have an opportunity to look into, to meditate on Scripture, and this hopefully is a time in which we can also uh, marvel in the glory of God that He would reveal Himself uh, through, through His disciples and through the Word of God uh, through them. Um, again, thank you for praying for our family. Um, as you noted perhaps last Sunday, I was a little bit uh, struggling um, to get through the sermon with a few coughs and gaps here and there. Um, uh, this sermon is brought to you by Fisherman's Friends. Um, this is a, just a product placement moment here. Uh, I just, uh, I think last Sunday I was feeling very well through the week, and I thought, well, I can do this, you know, and I think I got worried about that I was going to cough, and the worrying about the cough made me cough. So, who knows how these things work, but glad that you're here, and uh, glad to see many of you also recovered uh, over the last week or so, and that you're out as well. Matthew 10, 1 through 4, and he called to him his disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So, our text this morning is just very simple, uh, but what we're reading here is like the founding generation, if you will, Uh, a a founding generation and a corporation uh, leaves its mark and casts a trajectory upon that organization. There's something exhilarating about being part of something new and groundbreaking, uh, being a part of, a, you know, the, the early days of the nation of here in the Western Hemisphere, uh, perhaps being a part of a church, a new church plant. All of those things are very exhilarating, being a part of a new movement. If you've ever visited in a college or I mean, even if you've gone down the streets of Washington, uh, the names of the founders are marked on buildings, and, and they have a, a special place. Uh, large corporations tend to shrine uh, early team members who lifted that mom-and-pop business off the ground and made it great. 
Um, and so, so it is also in Christianity, there is a, was a founding generation that was built upon Christ, who was the chief cornerstone. But these names that are here are people who went on to do wonderful things for Christ and His kingdom. And so it deserves a special moment to reflect here on this. And please, I want us to note that, G, that Matthew describes this group of people as His twelve disciples. His twelve disciples. Uh, Mark and Luke simply call them the twelve, but that's really remarkable because these were His students. Matthew's very keen on this. These are the ones that, that stuck with Jesus, and they were absorbed into following Christ, and they had the life-fulfilling task to learn the ways of Jesus, how to follow Him, so that they could then pass that on to other people. Um, men have been changed and challenged by Jesus, and the truth is there is relationship in this little word, His. They were His disciples. They had a love for Him, and He had a love for them. And I believe that this is an essential point in this little text. We're going to go through some of these names and kind of, kind of piece together a little bit of their, bio, their biography, but I want us to note that, that Christ was the center of their relationship. And it's really only a love for Christ that can unite the church. Christ's love for them reciprocated in their love for Him. And I believe this is intentional. Last Sunday, we looked at the missionary heart of Jesus, but to take the heart of Jesus to the world, we have to have a united body of believers who prioritize a love for Him so that it creates a unity within the body. In Matthew's presentation, we see them staying with Jesus' teaching. He's about ready to kind of like do an educational moment on what it means to do mission. They stay with Him. They're not equipped. Just because they are called, they're not immediately equipped to be able to do this very well. And by comparison, they really are unskilled workers. If you remember last Sunday, Jesus said to those who were around Him, pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that He would send forth laborers, basically unskilled workers, into His harvest. And when you look at these people, all of them are almost dysfunctional in terms of what they bring to the table to follow Christ. There's a lot of encouragement here as we're going to look into some of these, these characters uh, this morning. Uh, but there is also a tremendous encouragement that those whom Jesus calls, He also will equip. And it is through the Spirit that the equipping comes. The Spirit comes to not exacerbate pride, but, all, but ultimately to cause us to be humble team players working together out of a love for Christ. 
Philip Yancey, an apologist, once said this, that conversion should come with a warning. You can't do this on your own. When you become a Christian, you are not, you need other Christians to be a part of your life, to help you carry out your calling as a follower of Christ. And in this group of 12, we're going to look at a diversity of giftedness, a diversity of giftedness in which everyone needed one another, and their love for Christ created a unity that was palpable, it was, it was contagious in their day. What we are going to see, too, is that um, there's a lot of wisdom in who Jesus chose, a lot of wisdom. I mean, if we were to pick an A-team of players, whatever, you know, doing the, the draft pool picks, you probably wouldn't have picked many of these. You might actually want to have all Peters, because Peter is a very flamboyant personality, but we actually probably should say thank you, Lord, that we didn't have all Peters. There is a mixture of, of, of diversity here that is essential, and indeed the church has grown through the years, and there have truly been others that have come after these disciples who probably were more equipped than these guys. I think in, through church history, I think of someone like John Bunyan. John Bunyan, we would say, that guy, if it was the first century, he would have been an apostle. Billy Graham. Who would not think that he would be a, a choice apostle? But God, in His wisdom, selected these 12. And I believe in His selection of these 12, it was to demonstrate His glory to work through people, to change people, to make them unified around the gospel and Him alone. God is the one who chooses, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain, that build it. He is the master architect. And so enough of this introduction, let's get into like looking at some of these characters this morning. Let's look and see, uh, I'm just going to basically go through Group by group. There's three groups. Do the simple math. Uh, three times four is 12, but when you compare the lists in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is a, an established, if you will, a pecking order within the group, and there's, there's not a lot of variation in how the lists are, are laid out. And so, let's look at the first list and the first disciples, as I call them, in verse, verse 2. Uh, 10, verse 2, it says, the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. These are the first. The Mueller family McDonald's, the, the place where my boys have found great prosperity, uh, it became more aware to us that that family had early contact with Ray Kroc at the very beginning. Uh, Ray Kroc, before there was ever a McDonald's, was a milkshake salesman, and he sold a milkshake to the Mueller family and uh, actually told them, hey, I think something good's coming. 
and I'll let you in on it. The Mueller family has like an early number of franchise within the McDonald's organization. There's something unique about being like in the early, there's something unique, but there's also potential privilege and also some perils that may come with that. And we have to guard against the potential of pride. And so let's look at Simon Peter, the man, as I call him, the man of rock. In verse 2, Peter is described as first. And the others aren't like second, third, fourth, fifth, all the way to 12. It's just described as first. Well, not the very first disciple to be called. It was actually his brother, Andrew, who found him and brought him. Peter, in time, though, became, if you will, the first among equals. His birth name, Simon, or Shimon, signifies, literally, listening. But if you think about Peter, he was not a good listener. He was always talking. He was unstable. Peter, I think, operated on the principle of, when in doubt, speak. He could instantly, though, perceive, you know, the heart of a situation. He acted decisively. He was prompt. He was without hesitation. You might call him the little bull in the china shop. He was headlong. Yet, there was something about him. He was always ready to repent. He was always ready to, you know, even though he knew after a bit he was wading into waters that were just too deep for him, he would call out to his Savior. There were good qualities there. But it was divine grace which gradually transformed him over time to be like a rock man. He was, and that's what the name Peter means, or Cephas. Peter's heart ran often too hot. But over time, the cooling effect of the Holy Spirit caused him to be moldable and useful to the Lord. Having a strong and firm character on which others could rest, in time, Peter learned to be able to say, Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's think about Andrew for a minute. Andrew is, as it's even known here, as Peter's brother. Isn't it sad to be known as somebody else's brother? (laughs) I mean, we kind of want to be on our own and be our own people, right? Uh, Yet Andrew was, though, a spiritual father to his brother. Andrew knew Jesus first, and he brought Peter to Jesus. It was during a time period, likely when the fishing season was at a, a kind of a low point. There are seasons in the year when, when fishing can be much more productive, that, that he, Andrew, would go south and, and spend perhaps some money in, in Jerusalem and while down there, he, he was captivated with the preaching of John the Baptist. It was John the Baptist who pointed out to Andrew and also John who was there and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Andrew, whose name means manliness, was 
likely a rough-hewn guy. His, he probably lived up to his name. But yet he had a big heart for other people. He brought people to Jesus. He brought people to Jesus throughout the Gospels. Yes, he started with his own brother. But then Andrew also brought Philip. He was also the one who, who brought the little lad with the, the bread and the fishes to Jesus. He was the one that the Greeks came to at the Passover and said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And Andrew brought them to Jesus. I think one of the easiest things that you or I could ever do, and it's very simple, we could simply tell people, look, I have found the one. I have found the one, and just tell this to other people. I found the one whom my heart has always longed for, the one who is coming again, the one who's coming. We see James. James um, is the next in discussion line here. I call him the first martyr. Uh, the word martyr means witness. It, it's a, a statement of being willing to give up one's life as a testimony, as a witness to your faith in Christ, and James was that. But James was very quick to respond to Jesus' call. If you recall back in Matthew chapter 4, uh, Jesus, if you will, had multiple calls with his disciples, but in the early calling of, of James, he was with his brothers, and there was, a, there was nets spread upon the ground, and he left straightway, it says. Left straightway. Didn't even hesitate. Now, James, as a name, is derived from the name Jacob. Jacob. If you remember Jacob's meaning means deceiver, there can be something here in this in regards to James. If you recall, even his mother was in on the act. There was this effort to try to secure a prominent place within the kingdom and that perhaps even James and John might be able to sit on either side of Jesus' throne, and it caused a lot of dust-up in the, in the community. Uh, James also was renamed, if you will, the Son of Thunder by Jesus. And it may be that Jesus was pointing out a, a weakness in James, but it also may have indicated that what he was going to do through James, that as James would preach, it would create a boom, it would create thunder, collapse in people's hearts and minds, like a voice that shakes the earth as the gospel goes forth. It was he with Peter and John, they were selected to participate in the transfiguration, to see that occur. James was with the little select group that could go in and, and see Jairus' daughter be resurrected from the grave. James was first in many ways, and he eventually was the first in giving his life for Christ. The last disciple in this group is John. John, if you read his gospel that he wrote, yes, he was a very clever man, but he also studied people. He studied people. 
It's unique because in his gospel, we have 24 recorded conversations between Jesus and individual people. And of these 24 conversations, 17 are unique people. John sat close to Jesus in the upper room and seems to indicate that there was a closeness between him and Jesus, almost like knowing the heartbeat of Jesus, and very likely allowed him to be able to express the very heart of Jesus in his writings. You know, we know that John is also named one of the sons of thunder, and while he wanted to call down fire upon the Samaritans, John became known as the son of love. John can vigorously condemn false teachers in his epistles, but he also explains the love of God most clearly. He is the one who describes God is love, and we love Him because He first loved us. That is so profound and is the, is the impetus for our understanding of the triune, the triunity of God. John was the longest living apostle, living up right up to the end of the first century. And actually, his writing may even be seen in the early stages of the second century. How do I say this? We have a very old manuscript fragment called Papyrus Number 52 that is dated to about 125 A.D., and could very well be a copy from the original that John had written. But John lived long. He, he, he died of natural causes. He, he suffered um, exile on an island in isolation. But after his exile was over, he returned to the church. He returned to Ephesus and died a natural death, the last of the disciples. That's the first group. Let's move into the second group. The second group, the, I call them the middle, middle disciples, uh, verse 3. Let's remind ourselves of these names. We have Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. And this middle group of disciples um, are not to be overlooked. They're essential, not just like the first four. They, they all have a role to play in the ministry of Christ and the church. Philip, I call him the, the earnest inquirer. He, he earnestly inquired. He wanted to really know about Christ, and we shouldn't confuse Philip. It's easy to confuse names of different Philips in the Bible. This is not the, this is not the deacon in Acts uh, chapter 7 and 8, um, there was a deacon evangelist who took the gospel into Samaria, and that's a different Philip than this Philip. Philip here, he was from Bethesda of Galilee. And John's, John's uh, gospel fills in some of the sketches, kind of fills in what we know about Philip's witness, um, even though he might be omitted from some of the others. Jesus actually decided to go to Galilee on purpose, as it says in John chapter 1, to go into Bethesda 
It was like he knew he had an appointment, a divine appointment of finding Philip. And it sets up a chain of events, a chain reaction in which Philip then goes and finds Nathaniel. And Philip is not really overly skilled in his recommendations to go find Christ. He says to Nathaniel, he says, simply just come and see. Like, come and taste and see if this is what we've all come to kind of realize, that this is, this, this is the one we've been looking for. Now, his, his Greek name is a little bit of a curiosity to us. Uh, Philip is a Greek name, which I think means lover of horses, and uh, actually has its roots in the uh, Greek empire and uh, Philip the Great. Um, and we don't know his Jewish name. He, he, it kind of indicates that his family was probably more integrated into Greek culture, more so even possibly, but yet there was enough education in his background that he was expecting a Messiah. He was earnest. If he was not always quick to perceive the spiritual truth, he was earnest. And I say this because at the feeding of the 5,000, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus tested Philip. And at the feeding of the 5,000, you have all this crowd in front of him, and he says to Philip, where are we going to buy bread that we can eat, that we can, you know, feed all of these people? (laughs) And it was a test to see if Philip could put the dots together. Philip had witnessed Jesus healing all of these people, and could he, could he assess and say, okay, if he can do that, then, then he will be able to feed these thousands on his own. And so, Philip, though, unfortunately failed the test, and he said, we don't have enough money even if we did to feed all these people. Where in the world would we buy the food from? Thinking temporally and not seeing the power. Uh, Philip knew the stories of the man in the wilderness, and he had seen Jesus heal, but he couldn't quite put it all together. Philip was confused later in the upper room, when Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long, Philip, that you still don't know me? See, Philip had a hard time of putting two and two together and making the connection with Jesus being the Son of God. You know, if you stop and think about it, these aren't really the kind of characters that you would think would be the founding generation of the Christian church. People who were struggling to figure it out. But yet God was able to do miraculous things with people like Philip. Also Bartholomew or Nathaniel. I call him the, the genuine Israelite. That was Jesus' assessment of him. In Luke's gospel, um, he is called Bartholomew, and this may cause us a little confusion as to who the identity, but they're actually the same person, and, and scholars have believed that it's actually his last name, if you will, his surname, like Nathaniel Bartholomew, uh, like his associated name of his clan, 
And uh, when Philip brought Nathanael to Jesus, Jesus said, hey, this is, a, this is a genuine guy. This is a true Israelite. There's not any deceit in him. He's, he's not a person living a double life. Now, he wasn't perfect because he, he, he perhaps even had a little bit of pride in himself, and he, he replied to Philip saying, hey, we found Jesus of Nazareth, and he said, well, what can good can come out of Nazareth? And so there's like a little prejudice there, and he had formed an opinion about Jesus even before he had a chance to get to know Jesus. And prejudice and preconceived ideas can often prove to be an obstacle to coming to faith. There are many people like Nathaniel who have resistance to hearing about Jesus because they have preconceived notions about what he would be like. We ought not rule them out completely. Those people can be one as well. We have Thomas. <clears throat> Thomas, I describe him here as the melancholy. Thomas the melancholy. You think about Peter. He was enthusiastic. He was bombastic. Here we have Thomas who just, by contrast, appears melancholy. He just takes, it seems like he takes the downside in, in, in every conversation. Um, for example, they had been at one point chased out of Judea, uh, even potentially threatened with stoning, and they went into the region of Jordan, and then they got a message that their friend Lazarus was ill and that Jesus was requested to go back into Judea. And Jesus purposes in his heart to go back, and knowing the threat against them, Thomas says, well, we might as well go too, that we may all die with him. When they come back from the empty tomb and they start expressing that some people had seen Jesus, it was Thomas who, who was resistant. He didn't want to get his hopes up. He said, I won't believe unless I can put my finger in his side. And finally, when Jesus appeared to him, Jesus rebukes Thomas and says, don't be faithless, be believing. Thomas, his resistance collapsed at that point, and because of Jesus and his compassion and sympathy, and even in the need to give a rebuke, he believed, and he followed Christ to the end. We have Matthew, Matthew, for whom this book is 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 titled The Publican. Matthew is probably the most startling of the disciples, if you really get down to it, and proof that the presence of Jesus brings unity and cooperation from people of different viewpoints. And when Jesus affirmed, uh, when Jesus affirmed that He had come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, Matthew was definitely one of those candidates that people would have said, yeah, 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 that's, that's who you came for. Matthew grew up Levi. That's a Jewish name. But somewhere along the line, he sold his soul. He sold his inner home circle, his country, his conscience, his own faith. He turned his back on Judaism and started taking taxes for the Romans. 
His kinsmen despised the oppressiveness of tax gathering. It was a rather clever device by the Romans to not be the ones collecting taxes, but the people of that nation be collecting from their own. Set up a kind of a a potential tension, but yet it also kept the Romans on the outside. See, the worst thing about money is that it's so much costs us so much to get it, and Matthew wanted it, and he was willing to be a turncoat to his own people. And I, I think it's really important to see that Jesus is able to do for other people what we could never even imagine. Jesus is able to turn people who were once enemies of our culture and turn them and set them on the right footing again. There's a third group, this outer, I call them the outer disciples. If you think of concentric, concentric rings of a circle, this outer disciple group, the last four here, we have James of Elphius, or the younger. James the younger, or as some translations will, will translate that word, mikros, which is, uh, means little, or younger, and we're not sure if it was because he was of short stature or that he was truly younger. Maybe he was younger than the older James and the need to distinguish the two. We're not 100% sure, and to be honest, we really know not a lot about James, the son of Elpheus, or the younger, the little. And there's not much that we would, could even really talk about, to be honest, other than Jesus decided to use someone who wasn't going to make as profound impact as someone like Peter, and that ought to encourage us. Most of us are commonplace people, ordinary folk, and yet the church is built with many like us. We all have an important role to play within the body of Christ in the expansion of His kingdom. Yes, there are Billy Grahams, but there are hundreds and hundreds and thousands of non-Billy Grahams out there that God builds His church with. That's encouraging. Next disciple is Thaddeus, Lebaeus, or Judas of, Tom, uh, Judas of James, a disciple who has three names. Now, you may not be as familiar with the, the name Lebaeus, but there are some manuscripts that, that will use that name instead of Thaddeus, but it essentially means the same thing. Um, and there were many Judases in Jesus' day, just as there are many Johns today, and you have to know what John you're talking about. But this name Thaddeus or Lebaeus has the idea of a tender endearing quality. Um, it, it was actually a term that was often used to describe a favored young child. And his original name, Judas, um, means Jehovah will lead, or Jehovah will be confessed. He'll, he, like, he'll take the prominent place. 
And it's really remarkable that really that, that we don't know a lot about him other than that we are told that he had a, a nickname, if you will, that, that spoke of a simple, childlike quality. In fact, you might see a little bit of a hint at the Last Supper. The only spoken statement that we have from him is uh, there were lots of questions to Jesus like, where are you going and what's going to happen at the Last Supper? And Jesus doesn't rebuke any of those questions. And there's this one question, it's, I believe, an honest question in which he had courage to ask. He asked and he wondered, how is it that when you come back, you will show yourself to us, but not also to the world? He was confused. He asked, you've heard this statement, there are no stupid questions, right? He asked one of those questions, though, that perhaps may have been said, well, duh, he's only coming to us. But really, what you see in this is that there is a willingness to ask questions and not make excuses for yourself saying, oh, I should have learned that years ago. I believe that sometimes followers of Christ, especially if they've come to Christ as an older adult, sometimes feel intimidated and afraid to ask questions that we might say, well, I should have been in Sunday school when I was younger. When, whatever stage of life that you come to follow Christ, you ought not be afraid of asking childlike questions. You have a sympathetic Savior who knows you and appreciates the genuineness of simple questions. We also have Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. Now, the Greek name Zealot is very descriptive, actually, and really kind of tells us a lot about Simon the Zealot. It would be a lot like if we were to say, well, so-and-so is a communist, or so-and-so is a Nazi, all of a sudden you've got some association in your mind as to who this person is. A zealot, these were the patriots, these were the ones who were ready to overthrow the Roman overlords. Uh, they had headquarters in Galilee, and they would do raids down into thicker Roman territory in, in Judea. They were highwaymen. They were uh, basically organized terrorists like Antifa. They were trying to overthrow. And they were the ones who actually drew the Romans finally into the Jewish wars and the final destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Let's think for, about this for a moment. Jesus' disciples are composed of people who are leftists and rightists. Rightists, if you consider someone like Matthew who is in league with the Roman government, and you have Simon the Zealot who is opposed to everything that Matthew stands for. Both of these people in the same group. That's shocking. And it shows us that Jesus is able to take a liberal and a conservative-minded person and unite them for a cause that's higher than their own political aspirations. 
Jesus is able to overcome all political, economic, psychological, and class barriers. This is the beauty of the gospel. And it's in association with Jesus Christ. And a love for Jesus Christ is what unifies the church. We have last, I would almost say not least, but most notorious, though, is Judas. I call him the traitor. Judas is always at the last of every list and always described as you know, the, the, the one who betrayed Jesus and the group. And I think it's helpful for us to recognize the presence of a traitor in the original 12 is a reminder of the possibility of non-believers in the midst of the church. My father, when he was 16 years old, heard a sermon by an evangelist who visited his little church preaching about Judas and the reality that just because you claim that you're a Christian doesn't mean that you are, in fact, a Christian. And it convicted his heart because when he was a youngster, he had, he had kind of followed his older sister towards the front altar and made a profession. But in reality, knowing his own heart, he had actually just simply followed his sister. He wanted the good boy response from those around him. And I think it's helpful for us to realize and to be realistic about the church that the Christian life has dangers that are inherent to it. Because if you morally perform, others may believe that you are a Christian. But God knows your heart and He calls you to an honesty, an undividedness that will embrace Him alone. The Christian life is dangerous because it was also someone from the inside who destroyed the church, if you will, even before it almost got off the ground. Clearly, God was in charge, and it was brought into miraculous uh, growth. But the reality is that as Christians, we have not reached our final goal. As Christians, we may claim to be Christians, but it is the genuineness of your perseverance that is the final stamp upon your life. It's really important for us to realize, yes, we can be like that dying thief on the cross and and know that we will be to get to, you know, immediately with, with Christ in paradise. But we also have to be honest about ourselves and realize we need a profession of faith that also matches how we're living for Him. It's a dangerous and complicated thing to consider oneself to be a Christian. And I don't want to disparage the important doctrine of eternal security I think it's important sometimes that we do not confuse assurance with eternal security. They're two different things. And so, as we kind of come towards the end of this group, I want us to just reflect and remember that in all of these diverse personalities, 
the common unifying person is Christ. And I see in this that for the mission of the church, it is only a love for Christ that can unite the church. As much as we are united to one another, it will be evident by our love for Christ. When we love Christ first, we then care for one another. Simon the Zealot and Matthew get along. Peter the Loud and James the Less, they complement one another. Andrew, Thaddeus, Thomas, they're the ones who support those who are up front. They all have a critical part to play within the body. And this group then also provides encouragement for us that there are no perfect people and there are no perfect congregations, only people who love Christ and fight for the unity of the mission. Let's pray.